Commentary Hour. Our theme today is, did we have a cure for AIDS way back in the 1980s? And it was stopped. It was blacked out. It was erased. It was canceled. And I and others were attacked for having succeeded where the mainstream media and the government have been giving just misinformation and promoting toxic drugs. That is our story. But before we show you a multi-award-winning documentary done by a group of independent international investigative reporters. I'm not in the film, but it's about my work. And it's a two-part series, part two today. The first little background. You're going to hear in a moment a clip from a woman scientist. She'd been a scientist her whole life. Her name is Elena, and she was the personal assistant of scientific research at the Institute of Applied Biology under the director, meaning that if you wanted to do a project, you had to get her approval, she had to review it, and then if she greenlit the program, then fine, whatever time it took, whatever resource materials you needed, she approved. Well, recently, and I hadn't spoken to her in years, recently she called me and she said she wanted to apologize. And I said, for what? And she said that when she had come to the Institute of Applied Biology, she had an open mind. She believed that whatever the science showed, that's what it was. Good results, bad results show it. But it didn't work out that way for her. Now, downstairs were all the you know, best and brightest from working on cancer research and pain research, etc. I was the guy upstairs doing anti-aging research. She came over and she spent a long time probably four or five hours a day for about two weeks interviewing dozens of people with full-blown AIDS. The 23 medical staff, she interviewed them all. She looked at blood workups with the patient's permission. And then she asked me, could I take your protocol and see if I can duplicate it and come up with the same results at the Institute? I said, sure. And that's exactly what she did. And then the results happened and I was told that they had a 100% cure rate. 10 people over four years were treated with my protocols. I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't, didn't interview anyone. The doctors, nurses did, and they reversed their AIDS completely. And these were full-blown AIDS patients, not just asymptomatic HIV-positive people. And that was it, you know, and I said, good. And she called because she's had multiple strokes and she has stage four pancreatic cancer and she felt she's at the end of her life and she wanted to get this off her chest. I want you to hear what she has to say because that's how strong the fear was that there would be a natural and non-toxic approach to dealing with AIDS instead of the toxic chemotherapy such as AZT that had been banned as a cancer agent even for terminal people. And uh, this just shows you how how corrupt to the core the entire AIDS establishment that was following the drugs were. And yet at that same time, and before, in 1974, I was contacted by one of America's leading gay physicians, Dr. Stephen Kaiser in New York City. 
and he had problems with some of the patients helping them, and he wanted to know would my therapies work. So I worked with him over 10 years, 1974 to 84, almost 1,000 patients, and they all got better. And then he used those protocols in his own practice, and then word spread around. So when I started treating people with, with our medical team, I created the protocols, at the Tri-State Healing Center, we had remarkable results. It was 16 months in when we had our first complete cure. And just to let you know how fearful people were in the media of covering a story that might end up being not true, they would send in, like Tony Brown, Tony Brown's Journal, the most popular program on PBS, syndicated hundreds of stations. He would send in someone who would review with the patients their records. And it would take weeks. The same was true with Bill McCreary and, uh, and other, uh, and one, the major African-American publisher in the United States of a newspaper was Bill Tatum. Bill was there constantly. And so was uh, a leading uh, African-American journalist and lawyer. And he had a real passion about this because he was close personal friends with someone suffering from AIDS, Arthur Ashe. And he was there, uh, Doug Henderson. So we had a group of, interesting enough, African-American journalists and dozens of African-American physicians who were at the center constantly. The people with AIDS-defining illnesses wanted to have their own support systems. So they came in at 6 o'clock, so 6 to midnight. We had two different rooms packed with people getting the protocols, and I was there almost every night working with them. Never a gown, never a mask, never gloves, sitting, holding hands, because I know it wasn't infectious, miss of it in being infected was just stupid. In any case, and people like Cicely Tyson, and a close personal friend of mine for decades, uh, was, uh, was there every time he was in New York, Dick Gregory, and also Stokely Carmichael, and Isaac Hayes, I mean, just Lots of people with that within the African-American community came there. In fact, uh, um, Isaac Hayes would bring down a whole bunch of juices. He, he had a driver, and they would bring in a whole case of fresh green juices, even though we had our own kitchen making juices. And we said, that's fine. He was doing his part. Well, we had tremendous success. And they invited me on their show. And Tony Brown had the medical records right there. He said, we've gone through all these medical records, and here's the person, and before and after, blood workup, T-cell count, infectious disease, etc. And he would give them a form. Eight times I was on PBS with people that I, I had helped cure. And, uh, but it was a whole team effort. In any case, we held a press conference based upon David Patterson, then... Senator Patterson of New York, who would later become governor, he said, this information's got to get out to the whole community. And uh, so we did a press conference. It took us a year to put it together. There were over 100 people from around the country using different natural therapies who had long-time survival and were healthy. Now, all of them still had the HIV virus, except the 18 that I'd worked with. They were HIV clear. They were totally cured. And we had a whole panel of scientists who were there to review the information, to make sure that there was no one slipping in there who was still sick or still had the HIV virus. Not a single member of the media came 
Yet there were three separate press releases sent out by one of the top PR firms in the United States. How is it possible that no AIDS organization, no foundation, no one within the AIDS community, no doctors, New York Times, nobody showed up? Tell me that that's not planned. Tell me that that's not a a behind-the-scenes boycott. Because Anthony Fauci, same Anthony Fauci, was promoting AZT. AZT was making billions of dollars in profit. Some AIDS organizations were getting huge amounts of money from the manufacturer. And so the idea was, attack Gary Nall. And that's what they've done. And for the larger community, they know that that's not true, but they also attack and destroyed Charles Ortlieb and the New York Native, the number one gay publication in America, Nina Ostrom, one of the finest journals, journalists anywhere. And uh, they destroyed anyone's reputation, including in the gay community, if you said there's another way to approach it or there are contradictions in what they're telling us. So I did five multi-award winning documentaries on the topic. The first one was called A's Real Hero. There was no denial of HIV. In fact, in the document, you see every single person is captioned HIV positive in their diseases. But they all were alive and well. None died. All right? After two years on the protocol. That's before my advanced protocols. But they were healthy. And it's a documentary. And I premiered that at Lincoln Center at the Walter Reed Theater. It was packed. Then I did a press conference. Again, nothing got out. Nothing. So what you're about to hear is comments from a woman scientist who had this been published. I mean, think of it. What institute, what hospital, if you were able to show and prove scientifically to the highest standards that you reversed 18 out of 18 individuals, complete AIDS, healthy, no virus, that would have made headline news. Millions of people would be alive today. But that was all covered up. This is a documentary that proves that. I'm not in it. Don't take my word. You're all Celia Farber and all these outstanding multi-award winning journalists telling you the truth. Pass this on. This deserves congressional hearings. I will testify under oath, as I have in many cases before. I will bring back those doctors, the patients, the scientists. It also exists. But this is the documentary that has not been allowed to be released. Nobody will touch it. And yet it won more film festivals in the last 12 months than any other documentary in the International Independent Film Festival circuit. Now to the clip of Elena, and then right into the movie. Part one this week, part two next week. And one of those studies, and there's two points that you and I discussed last night. One of them was that when you came over to the Tri-State Healing Center on one occasion and you spent hours there with the staff, the medical staff, and the patients, you saw we were getting remarkable results that you had not seen anywhere else with people with AIDS, right? Yes, yes. And so you asked could you have the protocol to see if you could duplicate the results without my direct intervention, yes. uh, just providing the protocol with your own medical doctors? And so I said, yes, I gave you the protocol. You set up an independent study using the exact protocol, nothing more, nothing less. 
uh, a non-toxic, non-invasive, high-dose vitamin C drips, glutathione, etc. And with 10, 10 individuals uh, who all had full-blown AIDS at the Institute um, over a period of four years, all of those people seroconverted to normal from HIV positive, negative, and all their opportunities to confection were gone. They were completely cured and natural. Is that correct or not? Yeah, it's correct. And I remember very, very, that was a gentleman that uh, he was part of your study and he was still alive a long time after uh, all this AIDS was a little bit under control. Um, and my husband went from a, uh, uh, ha having like no T cells to, uh, to a very positive test now that I guess Gary will uh, explain to you that uh, it's not active at all. Yes, I think we'll turn to uh, The most Simona. important yes, thing here is this. Work it here. This is a test from Roche Biomedical Laboratories, which is Division of Hoffman Roche. This, is, a, this is an official blood chemistry test. This shows that, and here's what's important, and this is why we're not talking about a test tube and stopping a virus in a test tube. This, these are live human beings. Their physician, using a holistic protocol, and this is a regular orthodox doctor, in a year, they, they, this person went from HIV positive active virus to P24 antigen test negative. Mm -hmm. HIV antibody positive, that means the HIV to have no antigen 24 means you have no active HIV active in the body. All you have is the antibody. Now, that means this person has made substantial improvement. And this should be getting some attention because it shows, and this is not the only person. There are many that, people that, like that this. That would be the question. People say, well, sometimes, you know, these things happen in isolation, so to speak. Let, let, me, let me find this. You have physicians watching right now. Any physician treating a patient with AZT and DDI and DDC, please send me any results where you have someone who tested positive using standard tests for HIV P24 antigen positive, who after using those therapies, after a year, tested negative, and also has no active viral titers and no opportunistic disease. I'd be very interested in seeing that because I haven't found any, but I found many who've taken the different approach. Is that your experience? Okay. Yes. My, my experience is with tens of thousands of people. The reason our group focuses on alternative approaches is the people doing the best are using them. Across the board, without exception, the people who are following the advice of the media and the advice of the medical establishment are dead or dying. Our group has repeatedly seen over and over again the people who are living with AIDS and those at risk who are staying healthy are using alternative treatments to AZT, DDI, and DDC. Now, for, now for someone, uh, you know, there's a lot of lot of fraud going on out here. So a, a lot, lot of quackery. Are, a lot of quackery. A lot of quackery. And we don't want to get people involved in any kind of quackery. Right. Uh, we want to deal with with absolute proof, and therefore we will have you back again. Right. To what, continue this. What's important is that. You have to differentiate those alternative therapies that have a scientific basis for healing and helping and those that do not, that are purely anecdotal. Michael's group, I don't treat and I don't diagnose. I merely investigate and try to see what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And at least they can go for support sessions to Michael's group, which is, which not, is they're not selling anything. It's a nonprofit group that helps people who are HIV positive, helps them understand what options are available. Okay. 
As members of the Fifth Estate, the press has been invested with the public trust and has an obligation to report the truth. Has the media been lax in its responsibility to fairly report all aspects, all views of the HIV-AIDS challenge? As journalists, there is a big responsibility. You need to consider how you cover a story, how you have been gathering information, the reliability of your sources. There is a need to see both sides of an issue impartially. Unfortunately, all too often, journalists are hampered by the thought of losing their jobs or simply not being published because of the controversial nature of their findings. I certainly do believe that the media has a responsibility also. And that responsibility is to report fairly on all of the latest breakthroughs and whatever it may be, be it health, technologies that the media has that responsibility every journalist who tackled it in every medium found themselves targeted eliminated if not driven from the profession permanently some only got very stern warnings many many when they got that first warning that first tap on the shoulder simply never touched it again it was considered absolutely radioactive. It was cancer to your career. And they were very clear about this. And the truth is that if you're a journalist who says, I'm going to report the truth in today's uh, market where a, a few very powerful people control uh, uh, the media outlets in, uh, in most countries, you'll lose your job. Anyone who tries to venture into this field of trying to report fairly and accurately all sides of the story will immediately be pushed out onto the margins and told that they're being irresponsible and that they are trying to support people whose views are just not credible and they're nutters. And so the journalists themselves will be then become treated as nutters and as, as, as rogues. And so they begin to lose their credibility. And so it's a very brave journalist who puts forward any of these views because immediately he's in danger of having his whole journalistic career discredited. If this is Eastern Europe metaphor, you're in East Berlin and you're not getting out and you're not going to, you're never really going to work. You're not going to be hired at the such and such. Your, your children are never going to be accepted at university. It really, it's that, it's that um, totalitarian, um, totalitarian reach that they have. It's not just that your article is going, is, is going to be decried or not published or protested against, it's going to filter out into every facet of your life and it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. It goes on and on and on. And eventually, in my case anyway, what happens is you, you kind of internalize the contract. You internalize the contract and you accept that many opportunities, career opportunities and so forth, are off limits to you because you sinned in this church, this virus church, and it is, it is a, uh, I would, I'm not going to call it a religion, I will call it a cult. One of the best defenses of the AIDS establishment is telling you that it's far too complex for you to understand. You can't possibly understand it. Don't try, just trust us. And that has been very successful so far. At some point in time, and I, I hope it's not in, in the too distant future, we will be looking back on AIDS and saying, how could we have been bamboozled for so long? How come nobody spoke up? One of the things I found very surprising is the degree to which 
journalists, science journalists, have just followed the indus medical industry line um, and not seriously challenged it to a, a large extent. All around it was this bizarre war about who was allowed to say what about what might help people with the syndrome. And people were so attacked and blocked and demonized for that that most people just backed off. We have had great difficulty with a fairly short paper based entirely on data in the UK and USA, all verifiable, all factual, and, and coming from an immense and well-validated database in both countries. We cannot get that published. It's only 4,000 words. We cannot get it published. We set it to the BMJ, the Lancet, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine, and we've discussed it in other quarters, and they will not only not publish it, they will not give reasons for not publishing it, and they did not subject it to peer review. A tragedy, a disgrace, it's been almost complete. There are people in this city who work quite hard to try and create the space in which a proper discussion can be had. And whenever I or anyone else raises the argument um, that we should start looking at the alternative views, we're immediately told that we're being highly irresponsible, that we're encouraging the gay community into things like unsafe sex, and we're being completely and utterly um, disregarding the anxieties of people who have uh, HIV and AIDS because we're creating doubts and anxieties that they don't need. And this is quite wrong because as a journalist, I believe in, in totally open debate in whatever the area should be. In fact, the World Health Organization accused me personally when I was writing on these articles of being responsible for millions more projected deaths, millions more projected deaths in the UK, definitely, and, you know, worldwide. They were saying by raising these issues in an important paper like the Sunday Times, you will be doing so much damage to our efforts to tell people about this peril that, that is awaiting. And they would believe this when they were saying it. I can't think of another national newspaper, any other national newspaper, that came to the support of the Sunday Times when it was doing this. All the medical and science correspondents were united in either being silent on the issue or else they would, they would be ready to join in with others in attacking the Sunday Times and accusing it of irresponsibility. Right after I got the Nobel Prize in chemistry, man, I can't even write a, a short four-page hypothesis about what might, in fact, be a probable cause of AIDS. A, a hypothesis that was a useful one because it suggested a way to disprove it or prove it. You know, that's what a hypothesis is for, is to sort of suggest experiments that will try to disprove the hypothesis, or if you can't disprove it, you start slowly accepting it. And, and so, Lancet, Nature, science, those people, those people say, we don't need a hypothesis directed at understanding what might be causing AIDS. We already know. Take, and I call back the editors and I say, no, wait a minute, this is, you got to like in, 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 in uh, Lancet, they've got a section called medical hypotheses. That's, that's, a, that's a type of an article you can submit. I say, this is a hypothesis. This is a very good hypothesis. Not only can it be proven or disproven easily with rats or mice, but if in fact it's, it shows if it turns out that this does cause AIDS, you'll have a model system, an animal model system, which would be worth billions of dollars to the pharmaceutical industry.
AZT was uh, approved under very shady circumstances in the late 1980s by the FDA with no safety and no efficacy data. They did it anyway. I read all the documents that I obtained from the FDA and wrote an article about it in 1989 called Sins of Omission. So many members of the gay community, most of which were the people getting AIDS, were entwined with the entire concept of needing AZT. Now, AZT has a litany of side effects. In fact, it weakens the immune system even more. And when you have AIDS, your immune system is already broken. It was a drug that was in the sh lying around at the National Cancer Institute, an old chemotherapeutic agent that was shelved in the early 1960s because it was considered too toxic for human use, too toxic as a chemotherapeutic agent in the early 60s, is now pulled out of the drawer and revamped for an, a syndrome of immune suppression. So this is what I would call psychotic medicine. What happened was they chose it. It was just like this darling chemical. They just chose it. And then everybody started to rally behind it that it showed promise, that it showed early, and, and the activists got wind of it and they wanted it approved quickly. Why the, all of these people got behind one of the most toxic chemicals ever administered for human use is a complete mystery. I don't know how many of the people who have died, so-called of AIDS, have actually died of AZT, because it certainly would wreck your immune system to take that stuff for a few years. It's like if you started taking any other chemotherapeutic agent for the rest of your life, it would be that agent probably that killed you. You know, when you give chemotherapy to somebody with cancer, you give them a round of it for maybe 14 days or a few days. Hopefully, you're not going to kill the patient. You're going to kill the cancer. The patient's going to survive. But you don't keep giving it to him until he dies, because he certainly will. And AZT is just like those things. It's a little more lethal than most of the anti-cancer things that people take for that. According to a presentation at the AIDS conference in Barcelona in 2002, and a scientific study published in the Journal of Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, December 2003, more HIV positives were dying from organ failure as a side effect from the HIV drugs than dying from AIDS. As I understand it, Burroughs Welcome saw very early on that they could make a move into a new market. We can hardly blame them. That's what capitalism is. It's an ever-expanding market, isn't it? And, um, of course, in this country, along with uh, Professor Robin Weiss, they uh, developed one of the first antibody tests, which uh, gave them an open door to sell the drugs to the people who tested positive on their test. Burroughs Welcome and all of the other drug companies are making millions and millions of dollars off these drugs. The new protease inhibitors that are out there right now, they require you, in most cases, to take other antiviral drugs with the protease inhibitors. In other words, you just don't take the protease inhibitors, you take the AZT and the DDI or the DDI DDC, combination of all these drugs, uh, the drug companies are making a fortune. What they look for is surrogate markers now. Have you heard that term battered about? Surrogate markers means, well, it doesn't seem to do anything for the disease, but it does every now and then do something for the level of CD4 cell that we measure, or it does something for this or that. 
Not that anybody really knows whether you want more or less CD4 cells at any particular time in your life. A lot of diseases cause CD4 to go up. A lot of diseases cause it to go down. Nobody's even sure if a CD4 cell is always a CD4 cell. I've met hundreds of patients. I've interviewed them. T-cells, uh, 1, 0, 30, 80, perfectly healthy people, and they just go on like that. T-cells, I don't think they have any idea what T-cells are. Just it's a marker on the cell at the time that they do this little counting procedure, which is to stick a fluorescent tag on there and say the ones that light up have CD4 on the outside. And we don't really know what those cells do. The immune system is incredibly complicated. And immune, the immunologist's brains are not nearly complicated enough to deal with it. We have these little, you know, there are theories all over the place, but no real competent immune, immunologist would tell you that CD4 levels was a sufficient a surrogate market for anything until we know more about it. But that's what they're using. That's what the FDA is saying, yeah. You don't have to show that it helps them. These protease inhibitors, the same thing. Don't have to show that it helps the patient. You don't have to show a single life saved. All you have to do is show some little clinical indicator has changed in a way that somebody is hoping is going to make you better. And according to the largest and longest scientific study of heart, highly active antiretroviral therapy, the drugs being given today are even more dangerous and offer no increase in longevity than those given in 1996. Having created and marketed the HIV story, the US government scientists, Fauci, Gallo, who were primarily responsible for doing this, they needed a drug to go with it because gay men at that Washington AIDS conference, they were demanding, I remember the demonstrators there saying, give us the drugs now. You know, they were really f afraid and they really felt that drugs were the answer. And once it was approved, tragically, the first dose, which was chosen at random, was so high it could kill a horse. It was 1,800 milligrams of this incredibly toxic chemical. And that early dose just killed people like flies. They were dropping like flies. They were that, that emaciated, uh, discolored, you know, skeletal person sitting in the in the hospital bed gasping, that's an AZT victim. But it was branded in the psyche via the media as an AIDS victim, which served the purpose of making people so afraid of AIDS and Bob Gallo's new virus that they would do anything the government told them to do. Of the studies used to claim benefits for AZT, uh, all of them, without exception, were financed by Boros Welcome, the manufacturer of AZT, and were controlled by them. And I would say, therefore, they are open to uh, questions simply on this basis alone. The few studies over which Boros Welcome had no control, uh, one of them being a study conducted in Paris by Adurnon and colleagues, uh, found no benefits for AZT. And the Concord study, which took place between uh, Britain and France, uh, giving AZT to people who were asymptomatic, also found that there were no benefits to AZT. We see examples like the Concord study or the Veterans Administration study that say that these approved medicines only benefit the pharmaceutical companies and their stockholders. The phase two trials were the basis of the drugs being approved by the FDA for marketing in the United States. 
and also the basis for the drug being approved in 31 other countries. There were all sorts of irregularities. Um, actual cheating took place in at least one of the centers. And on top of that, uh, the investigators, uh, the people working for the FDA, uh, used data which they knew were bad. And yet this study is still being used to claim that AZT extends life. AZT causes diarrhea. AZT causes muscle wasting. It causes a whole host of, of complications. AZT causes instant old age. How do you know which is the disease and which is the effect of the drug? One courageous activist whose voice has never been heard, but is nevertheless crucial for understanding the politics and corruption behind the AZT trials was Lynn Gannett. She was a field observer for the National Institutes of Health during the AZT trials conducted in Syracuse, New York. She discovered the protocols were improperly adhered to, the trials were not properly double-blinded, and she accused the federal agency of gross scientific misconduct. During the three years that I participated in the early AZT clinical trials, I witnessed the most shocking, unethical, unscientific and corrupt behavior by the clinicians conducting the studies. Whenever there was an adverse reaction, such as diarrhea or weight loss or night sweats or vomiting or fevers or the development of an opportunistic infection, this information was supposed to have been recorded on an as-needed form. Often these things were not recorded. These are Gannett's notes that have never seen public eyes. If I had known then what I know now, I would have been much more persistent in my attempts to report this information to the NIH. I did report this to the NIH, and they deliberately ignored my information. I have precise names, patient numbers, dates, lab values, memos, etc. I know that my information is accurate because I was so thorough and meticulous, not to mention honest, in my record keeping. For the NIH to knowingly ignore serious and credible documented reports of gross scientific misconduct coming from someone working on the inside of these trials, if that doesn't constitute scientific fraud, I don't know what does. All of this intentional blindness on the part of the NIH, the FDA, Burroughs Welcome, etc., led to the unnecessary and unimaginable suffering of countless individuals, of both HIV-positive people and their loved ones, and the unnecessary deaths, in my view, of tens of thousands of people. Knowing what I know firsthand about AZT and knowing that it should never have received FDA approval under any circumstances, I was an eyewitness and later a whistleblower to gross negligence and fraud in the phase three clinical trials of AZT, 1987 to 1990. I've been saying to people for years that AZT was never proven to be safe or effective. From the particular studies in which I was involved, it would have been impossible to prove anything. The data was such a mess. I now realize that AZT is a deadly poison. All AIDS drug trials since that time have been based on the same flawed model. 
the big difference is that now there is even less meaningful oversight and even more of an economic incentive for physicians to enroll patients. There were many patients who developed blood toxicities. There were many patients who experienced other symptoms of adverse reactions. Think of all the people who died from uh, what we think was AIDS. Were those people, in fact, killed by AZT? AZT, which was clearly killing people, and even the orthodox side has admitted in subsequent years that AZT killed a lot of people. The estimate I've heard is upward of 300,000 mostly gay men killed by AZT alone. They called it monotherapy. The way they got out of that, they had all these phrases that they invented for themselves. One of them was lessons learned. So you would see all these medical papers and coming out and it was lessons learned, lessons learned, and now we've moved on. Monotherapy was the lesson learned. Oh, not one drug, several, a cocktail, that we're going to have several drugs and the mistake was to have one drug. No, the mistake was to have one of the most toxic drugs ever put into a capsule and given to humans. But it also acts in other ways. It acts in the mitochondria to lead to the oxidation of the mitochondrial DNA in ways which were not suspected. I'm thinking of the work of Miyazawa and Ozawa. Uh, it destroys mitochondrial function, and the mitochondria may be the secret to the degenerative diseases. A 1,200 milligram dose of AZT originally handed out to patients like candy, and they were desperate to take it, in 88 and 89 and 90 resulted in countless unnecessary deaths. This is proven beyond a doubt by the largest and longest study ever conducted of the drug AZT amongst asymptomatic people, that is people who have HIV antibody but do not have symptoms yet. That was the Concord trial. And if you actually look up the Lancet publication of that trial, you find that the trial is divided into two groups of people. They're all healthy, they're all HIV positive. The one the group that gets a placebo, a dummy drug that does nothing, and the other group which gets the real thing without telling people follow them for three years. When you looked at the people who went on the drug right away, in that group of people, there were 169 deaths. In the group of people that waited until symptoms developed to take the drug, there were a scattering of deaths, two or three. Now, I think that's pretty persuasive evidence that that drug is and was harmful. If you tested antibody positive for it, you had it, and you were going to die. When you were going to die was, was an expanding concept, but in the beginning they said it could be six months, it could be a year, which was fulfilled, by the way, by the AZT uh, part of the story, because when people took AZT, they did indeed die in half a year, or at most a year, especially at those early high doses. I've shown that the um, original drug trials, the phase two studies, were blatantly fraudulent, proving nothing, and yet it was the basis for the approval of ACT not only in the, the United States, uh, but 30 other countries. The original research for AZT said that it killed infected cells at a rate a thousand times greater than healthy cells. But there are now four papers after that original one, which is also a gallo Bolognese paper, this one that shows that, in fact, AZT is quite democratic 
it kills all cells equally uh, at the same rate. And in fact, that means it kills healthy cells at a rate a thousand times greater than they said it did. The question really is whether it should be considered criminal behavior on the part of people who have the public trust. You know, I mean, it is criminal behavior to set off a bomb in a federal building. Is it criminal behavior to start passing out poisons to people who have no real diagnosable diseases, to babies, for instance? Glaxo welcomes inserts to the physician's and the physician's desk reference, warns the doctors not to confuse the toxic effects of AZT with, with AIDS itself. AZT causes numerous AIDS-defining diseases. For example, AZT causes dementia, which is AIDS-defining, destroys the bone marrow, requiring life-saving blood transfusions of people that use AZT. This information you get from Glaxo Welcome itself, the manufacturer. Proteas inhibitors have few good actions. They are antibiotic. So if the patient has an infection, it's going to work in the infection. They are antiparasite. If the patient has a parasite, it's going to be good for it. If the patient has a fungal disease, the fungal disease is going to work also as an antimycotic. But beside that, the protease inhibitors are antioxidant. So at the beginning, or for a while, the protease inhibitors are going to do good. However, in the long run, when we give to a patient protease inhibitors, we are blocking the metabolism or proteins all over the body. So in the long run, the patient is going to die. And this is why nowadays the HIV AIDS establishment is still repeating. There is no cure for AIDS, there is no cure for AIDS, there is not a single cure for AIDS. Now, with the world facing COVID, I observe that many of the same people inside and outside government who mismanaged the AIDS epidemic are now repeating their mistakes during this crisis. The irony is that they are using the same strategies almost 30 years later, control the narrative through the supplicant and obedient media, censor criticism of alternative opinions, and destroy the reputations of those who hold a different scientific view. What is especially alarming about the corruption, politics, and profiteering during the war on AIDS and the cost of immense human suffering and loss of life is that Anthony Fauci was one of its leading architects. The conventional medical establishment and mainstream media simply served as his echo chamber. For his efforts, Fauci was praised and heralded as a hero. And here is why we should be concerned. It would seem that the CDC, the World Health Organization, and the mainstream media are using the identical playbook in their management of COVID-19, as was done during the AIDS crisis. The way they terrorize people is to conflate in people's minds, testing positive on a PCR test, and these people are being told they can expect to get sick and quite possibly die. The inventor of the test, I've written about this extensively, was very clear. This test was not designed to tell you whether you're going to get sick, to tell you whether you have a virus. That is not what PCR is.
How do they um, misuse PCR to estimate uh, all these so supposed free viral RNAs that may or may not be there? Uh, is this, um, I think misuse PCR is not quite I don't think you can misuse PCR. No, the results, the interpretation of it. See, if you if you if you can say, if 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 they wanted, if if they could find this virus in you at all, and with PCR, if you do it well, you can find almost anything in anybody. It starts making you believe in the sort of Buddhist notion that everything is contained in everything else, right? I mean, because if you can amplify one single molecule up to a to something that you can really measure which PCR can do, then there's just very few molecules that you don't have at least one single one of them in your body, okay? So that could be thought of as a misuse of it just to, to claim that it's meaningful. To test for that one and say that has any special meaning is what I think is the problem. Not that PCR has been misused, it's like... It's not an estimation. No, it's a real. It's a really quantitative thing. It How tells you it, something about nature and about what's there. But it 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 allows you to take a very minuscule amount of anything and make it measurable, and then talk about it in meetings and stuff like it is important. See that that that's not a misuse. That's just sort of a misinterpretation. Those tests are all based on things that are invisible, and they are the results are inferred in a sense. PCR is separate from that. It's just a process that's used to make a whole lot of something out of something. It's very interesting that they predicted approximately a million North Americans were infected in 1984, I think it was, and it stayed the same right on through 1996. That's not an epidemic. The number of cases reported went up epidemically, you know, exponentially, because the number of tests that was done went up exponentially. I asked, the first time I ever saw one of these CDC graphs, it showed this thing going off the page, and you know, I went up after that and I said, how did you uh, disentangle the, the, I mean, did you divide the number that you've got here by the number of tests that were done? I mean, can we believe that this line that you've drawn here about number of positive tests reported, is that really indicative of, of the spread of this virus? Is the virus getting, is there being more of it or are there more tests? If you divide by the number of tests you do, you don't get any kind of a curve going up. It's just, how many doctors knew about HIV in 1983? Two. How many knew about it in 1985? Say 500. How many knew, how many knew about it in 1986? 40,000. So that's where the curve came from. How many tests were done? Same thing. How many tests? They could have just said, how, many, how much money did we make off of HIV this year? And they could have plotted that, and it would have looked the same. You know, and they could have said it's an epidemic because we're making more and more money off of it every year. Everybody uses it experimentally and most people use it clinically around the world. Not maybe Britain doesn't use it. Maybe there are two countries that found a better way. God bless them. When he came up with his first test, he tested 30% of the American blood donators, so let's say the, the general population, he tested them positive. And the industry said, no, go home, Gallo. We won't buy your test because this is going to destroy our business. And the only thing what he did, he lowered the sensitivity of the antibody test. If they didn't allow him to charge so much for it, I think there'll be a lot less use of it. You know, it's just like in political scandals. Follow the money trail. Figure out who's getting paid for this. They didn't give it to us, they sold it to us. 
Now, who sold it to us? Who owns, who gets uh, money off the back? Gallo pack? himself was getting quite a bit off of it. He had to give a lot back to, to Montagnier when it was, was finally proven that he stole the virus from Montagnier in the first place. But Montagnier and the Pasteur Institute are getting a dollar, I think, or so every time that somebody gets an HIV test. If Antibodies. you get it twice in a row, you have a pretty good chance of getting a plus one time and a minus the next. That's why they thought for a while that it was widespread in Africa, because it cross-reacted with antibodies to malaria. Like most, a lot of places in Africa, the only kind of place you can get any medical treatment is a WHO hospital that's there for AIDS, right? So anything you come in there for, you cut your knee with a machete, you're an AIDS patient in some little book somewhere. The money is what starts the scientific paradigm. COVID-19 is, from my understanding, already a three-plus trillion dollar industry. What I've heard is that HIV is a two-plus trillion dollar industry. They're economic paradigms. They are banking systems. They are used to re-engineer and rebuild the economic system worldwide. They didn't have well enough developed a way to look for the virus itself at the very beginning. They, they could only look for the antibodies to it at first. PCR came along right about the same time that HIV did. And I was, it was in at CETUS that people started looking with PCR for HIV. That was the only way to see it, except for culture, which was a long protracted procedure, which a lot of times didn't turn up. The antibody test was something they could quickly develop. That's what, that's what Gallo did, and sell. And so he did. And he said, we're going to make a lot of money off this. Everybody in the world is going to have to take this test to find out who's going to die of the plague. So those guys up there on the top are just total administrative people, and they don't know anything about what's going on at the bottom. And, and a lot of people did take it, and he got a lot of money for it. I mean, and there's all kind of people all the way down the line getting paid for doing something that's absolutely insane. I mean, now, where is John Q. Public, you know? He's busy playing video games or something. He's not, not he's, he's asleep at the wheel. The difference is that there are now tens of thousands of scientists who have signed the Great Barrington Declaration to challenge and question the competence of our federal health officials. The declaration represents leading medical professionals from many of the top institutions, such as Oxford, Stanford, and Harvard universities. Yet those at the heart of efforts to challenge and provide sound evidence for these other treatments now being utilized in other countries throughout the world, their reputations are being tarnished. The government and major Silicon Valley companies such as Google and Facebook are banning those who challenge control over the pandemic's narrative. As the world confronts the SARS-2 pandemic, the lessons from the past medical discovery warrant greater attention. There are still non-toxic approaches to bring AIDS patients back to full health. Many of these therapies are still practiced by small groups of physicians and clinicians worldwide. However, a medical blackout continues and the achievements made three decades ago remain relatively unknown. We are witnessing history being repeated. For this reason, reviewing the past courageous doctors and public health experts, including Dr. Null, is necessary to identify the important lessons that need to be learned for today. A lot to absorb, I understand, but the evidence is overwhelming. 
And why is it that no one ever interviewed from the mainstream media Bill Tatum, Bill McCrary, Tony Brown, Earl Caldwell, Doug Henderson, and others? Why did no one from the medical associations or the scientific community ask the dozens of African-American physicians to give their input? Not once. Another thing, I was asked by Bill Tatum would I come up to Harlem to the Apollo Theater to talk about AIDS and the holistic protocols, and I said I'd be happy to. I didn't know when I went up there that it was so many people. We had to do three straight days, and not a seat was available. It's like 1,600 people three times. But I didn't know how it was planned. I thought it was just going to go up, be introduced, go out on stage and talk, answer questions. And instead, they had an hour and a half prior to inviting me up, they invited all these African-American physicians who have been to the center were using my protocols and getting outstanding results within the African-American community. So it was no secret within the African-American community I was helping people with AIDS because the doctors were there. And then I recognized many of them. And there were dozens that were introduced. Finally, they introduced me. And then the audience was Arthur Ashe, and there were a lot of famous people in the audience. And But not a word of this ever ended up in the mainstream media. How is that possible? How is it possible when someone who's not a politician, not an entertainer, is just getting up to talk about AIDS and fills the Apollo Theater three state days? It would have gone beyond that, but I had to go out on tour, and so I couldn't be there on the fourth, fifth, mm-hmm. next two weeks. And not a word of that goes into the mainstream media. That's not by accident. So that's it for today. Thank you very much for taking your time. And please, what can we do to stop the lies? What can we do to prevent more people from suffering and dying needlessly? We can say no to them and push back. Share this documentary. Share it. All right? Have a nice day. Hey, hey, what's happening? Brother, what's up? This is a big party, man. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you die. You know.